0: Good morning, morning. if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter five, as we continue our journey through this book, avoiding the trap of do it yourself spirituality. One of the big lessons we learn from scripture, from the Bible, is that its words are good. Good for us and just flat out good. Psalm 19, for example, tells us that God's words, the words of Scripture, revive us. They give us new life. They they make us wise. They give joy to our heart. And they enlighten us Our eyes enable us to see clearly. And then in verse 10, the psalm writer says this. More to be desired are they, God's words, the words of scripture, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. That's quite a statement. And then he says this, sweeter also than honey, than the drippings of the honeycomb. So the teachings of God's Word are not only true, they're valuable, they're precious, and they are sweet. And I suspect, I imagine many of us could, could quote some verses that taste particularly sweet to us. You know, like John 3.16 for God so loved the world, God so loved you, God so loved me, that he gave his only Son. That whoever, whoever, isn't it great to be part of whoever? Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Man, that, that is sweet. That is sweet. But have you ever encountered anything in the Bible that didn't taste? sweet to you? I ask that because over the next several weeks and months, we're going to be looking at some passages in 1 Corinthians that might not taste all that sweet to you at first. In fact, they might actually taste a little unpleasant, kind of sour, even bitter. Why would that be? Why would something in God's word that's good for us not taste good to us? Well, there's probably several explanations. One possibility is that we might simply misunderstand it. We think it's saying something that it's not really saying. And so, for example, when we get to chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians, and there's a lot of... uh, truth there about marriage in particular. Um, Many people, when they read that passage, they think that what it's saying is that being single or living a celibate life is somehow spiritually superior to being married. Living a celibate life puts you on a higher spiritual, moral plane than people who are married. Well, If you're married or you wanna be married, That doesn't taste very sweet. But it turns out that's a big misunderstanding of what that chapter is saying. And we'll deal with that when we get there. Uh, Another reason a teaching might not taste sweet is just because it's just flat out difficult. It's hard. You know, for example, the Bible teaches us that we ought to forgive. Forgive those who've wronged us. And you might completely agree that forgiveness is a good thing. You just find it really hard to do it, to actually apply that. And then another reason is that a a particular teaching might not taste sweet to you because it's just so different from what we're used to. And the passage we're about to read this morning might, might just fall into that category for you because it brings up some significant issues and what it says about those issues is very different from what's normal in our world, in our culture. It just tastes weird. It tastes different. Now, when it comes to moral convictions. And by morality, what we're talking about is if, if you have a belief that somebody should do or shouldn't do something, that's a moral belief. That's a moral conviction. There are certain things people should do, certain things people shouldn't do. That's, those are moral convictions. <laughs> Most people like to believe that our moral convictions are based on very careful, rational thinking. But it turns out Many times that's not the case at all, Uh, and research shows this. Most of the time, we just kind of have a gut feeling about morality, about what people should do or what they shouldn't do, and we tend to go with our gut. Or, let me say it another way, we have moral taste buds, just like we have, you know, physical taste buds. And if according to our moral taste buds, something tastes morally good or bad to us, we often just assume that it is morally good or bad. But here's the problem. Taste buds can get thrown off. I'll give you an example. How many of you think a nice glass of fresh squeezed orange juice from ripe quality oranges would taste good. How many of you think a glass of oranges tastes good? Really? That's all? Come on. <laughs> all right. Most of us think it would. All right. How about if you just brushed your teeth and you've got that, you've still got that minty fresh flavor in your mouth. Would that orange juice still taste good? No, probably not because, the toothpaste throws off your taste buds. Uh, I grew up in a home where the food was heavily salted. And so then when Karen and I got married, um, initially, I have to say, her cooking tasted kind of bland to me. (laughs) But as I got used to it, I discovered it actually tasted really good. Really, really good. <laughs> and then the, the funny thing happened. I would, we'd go back to my parents' house, and when I ate there, the food tasted way, way too salty to me. Um, that's, your, your taste buds get accustomed to what is normal, to what's normal to you. What tastes normal to you is what tastes good to you. It tastes right to you. Okay, the same thing happens with our moral taste buds. We get accustomed to the ideas, the moral ideas from our culture around us, from the world without, and without even realizing it, we acquire a taste for certain moral flavors and not for others. And then we read in our Bibles and we encounter some moral ideas that they just don't taste right. They don't taste right to us. Okay, but just because something tastes good or bad to us doesn't mean that it is. So, With all that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and consider how it tastes. By the way, I'm planning to spend a couple of messages on this because there's a lot here. I just can't cover it all in one message. This time we're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and verses 9 through 13. Okay, here we go. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and says this. It is actually reported that there is... Sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. That would be people who make no profession of faith in the God of the Bible, in Jesus. For a man has his father's wife. And this is referring to somebody in their congregation living in an ongoing sexual relationship, not with his mother, but probably his stepmother. Okay, his father has remarried, and now his father's out of the picture or something. We don't know the details, but this man is in an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. Verse 2, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? in the day of the lord verse 9 i wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters he's extending out the moral issues there since then you would need to go out of the world but now i'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother okay so this is a professing believer follower of jesus if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church, inside the community of believers, whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. That's a quote from Deuteronomy. Now, if those words don't taste at all unpleasant to you, I'm certain they would taste unpleasant to someone you know. This passage assumes two things. Two things are assumed here. First, that there are boundaries. There are boundaries that define good and bad for everyone. For things like sex, money, drinking, worship. So that's that's what universal moral boundaries means, is they apply to everybody. And the other thing this passage assumes is that those moral boundaries ought to be upheld by the community of believers, by a believing community, a, a church, uh, a community of followers of Jesus, those who trust and follow him. Okay, well, if you don't, if you don't like the idea of universal moral boundaries, or if you don't like these boundaries in particular, and you know, our culture really dislikes the idea of moral boundaries for sex in particular that would apply to everybody, or if you don't think Christians ever have any business making an issue out of these boundaries to one another, well, you know, if that, if that feels unloving to you, if that feels ungracious, well, then this passage is not going to taste very sweet. And what I would like to do now is use this passage as a case study in what to do when a moral teaching of Scripture doesn't taste good to you. So if you're a follower of Jesus, and I realize you might be here and you're not, you know, you haven't yet crossed that line, you haven't taken that step of faith in him, and I'm really glad you're here, and I hope this is, you know, informative, but this is mainly applied to those who profess to be followers of Jesus. If you, as a believer in Christ, encounter a passage that apparently teaches you to do something or not to do something, and that teaching tastes weird or wrong to you, what do you do? What do you do? First. Make sure you understand it correctly. Make sure you understand it correctly because you might be getting it wrong. I referred to, I think, a common misunderstanding in 1 Corinthians 7. So with prayerful humility, and I can't emphasize that too much, with genuine humility and prayerfulness, do your homework and make sure you're interpreting the passage correctly. Now, that doesn't mean find an interpretation that you agree with, okay? It means find the meaning that's really there, the meaning that's actually intended by the author. And there are all kinds of tools to do that. We have seminars on that. Um, I don't have time to go through those principles at this point, but do the homework. Make sure you're getting it right. And by the way, i just say this. If when you study the Bible... You expect it to always agree with everything you already believe. That is, you, you never expect to be challenged. You never expect to run across any teaching that doesn't, you know, in some way correct you. Then you think you already know everything and you think God has nothing to teach you. That's nuts. Okay. So we need to have that right expectation. We I mean, we are fallen people. We've grown up in a fallen world. There's brokenness everywhere. Of course, God's word is going to challenge us and correct us. We want it to. So don't have the expectation. You're never gonna run into anything that you don't go, whoa, that's different. Let me just quickly walk you through this passage and explain what it's saying, what it's talking about. Okay, so Paul the apostle who loves these people, this church in Corinth that he helped establish He's become aware that there's this man who's involved in an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother, which is outside the boundaries of God's design for sex and marriage. And that's a problem. It is a problem when we go outside the boundaries of God's good design and keep going outside the boundaries. Uh, because what we end up doing then is distorting Jesus and his, his, uh, his word, his ways, to the world around us. That's a problem when we do that. So that's a problem. And the even bigger problem here, the church is not doing anything about this. Um, they're ignoring it. And you know what? They're maybe even celebrating it. They're celebrating their toleration as evidence of how loving they are. But Paul's not having it. Paul's not having it, and he tells them to remove this guy from the community, the church community, for the good of the church. That's verses um, 6 through 8 that we didn't read. But also for the good of this guy. Notice it says, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's what Paul sees as the big issue here. This guy needs saving. So do something. this by the way is what it means to deliver him to Satan. I, I don't know what image came to your head when we read that, but that is the way of describing the removal of this person from the church community. Here's here's what's behind that. The church teaches that, or the Bible teaches, that this world is temporarily under the control, the influence of our enemy. And this will be the case until Jesus returns and fully establishes his kingdom on this earth. In the meantime, we're living in enemy territory. And so a church, a community of believers in Jesus, is like an outpost or a a colony within enemy territory. A refuge from Satan's rule where Jesus' leadership is celebrated and lived out. So that's part of what we do as a community of believers. We We celebrate who the king really is. It's Jesus, and we celebrate his leadership in our life, and we help each other live that out. And when we share the gospel with other people, we are inviting them to become part of Jesus' kingdom and live under his leadership with us as the Bible talks about, going from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved Son. So, if someone claims allegiance to Jesus, and yet persistently engages in biblically defined sin without repentance, Okay, we need to understand that's what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about an oops here. He's not talking about an occasional, oh, I blew it. He's talking about a pattern of willfully rejecting Christ's authority. Then that person is trying to have it both ways. They want to enjoy the benefits of Christian community while disregarding the will of Jesus and instead doing the will of the enemy. And that's deadly. It's deadly. So the goal of putting them out of the outpost and into Satan's domain, so to speak, is redemption. Not punishment. It's redemption. That's the goal. By removing them from the protective, beneficial influence of christian community they're going to experience consequences that we desperately hope and pray will bring them to their senses and bring them back to jesus and his people that's what this is saying now if you still don't like what it's saying we go further number two remember Why moral boundaries exist? Why are there even moral boundaries? Who gave them to us and why? Who gave us moral boundaries and why? All right, I want you to know something very significant. In verse four, Paul mentions Jesus twice. He refers to the name of Jesus And it refers to the power of Jesus, which is authority. That That means this. It means he is convinced that the action he is telling the Corinthians to take, putting this guy out of the church community, he, Paul, is convinced that that action is completely consistent with Jesus with his character, with his authority. In other words, that's what Paul believes Jesus himself would do if he were here in person. Why would he think that? Why would he think that? Because of what Jesus said and because of what Jesus did. Jesus taught us to uphold God's design God's beautiful design for marriage and sex look at Matthew 19 4 Jesus here is responding to a question about divorce and he said have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God therefore has joined together, let not man separate. See what he's doing? He's quoting, Jesus is quoting Genesis. He's quoting Genesis to teach us what marriage is and what sex is for. He's upholding God's good design for human sexuality, is the standard of what's good. And then in Matthew 18, he teaches, I I gave you the reference, I don't have time to read it, but I encourage you to. He teaches us what to do. What to do when a professing believer keeps crossing one of God's moral boundaries. He tells us we're to lovingly confront them. And if they repent, we're to forgive them. And if they don't repent, after repeated appeals, at some point, remove them from the church. Who taught that? Jesus taught that. Jesus. Loving Jesus. Gracious Jesus. Merciful Jesus. Forgiving Jesus. I stress that because Paul's not doing his own thing here it will not do to read these words and go, oh yeah, that's Paul. That guy's kind of a jerk. <laughs> no. He's not doing his own thing. He's not imposing his own personal opinions on everybody. These moral boundaries come from God. They reflect his goodness. They reflect his glory. And when we depart from them, we, we head down a path that's always less good. And sometimes we don't know better, and Jesus is so gracious. He's not not here, you know, saying, you blew it, you're out. It's like, but come to your senses. Come to me. Come to me. Receive my grace. Receive my mercy. Receive my empowerment to follow my design. We really, really have to stop thinking of moral boundaries as limits on our fulfillment, limits on our pleasure, limits on our satisfaction, as if God's given us this arbitrary list of do's and don'ts to keep us from having too much fun. That's nuts. That's nonsense. God gave us these boundaries because he's good, because he's loving A good way to think of them is to think of guardrails on the side of the road. Andy Stanley uses this illustration. I think it's excellent. Guardrails on the side of the road to keep you from going into the ditch or worse. Okay, so imagine a high mountain road. Somewhere up in the Cascades or the Alps. I think this is a great analogy of God's good design for sexuality because if you stay on the road, beautiful the view is spectacular at times it's exhilarating but if you don't stay on the road if you don't stay on the road that god designed you're going to go off a cliff and you're going to get hurt and you're going to hurt others so god gives you guardrail He gives you a moral boundary to keep you safe, to maximize your joy. You know what would be really foolish? To resent the guardrail. To keep, you know, banging into it because you think you'd be happier if you could just bust through that stupid guardrail. Or to applaud when somebody removes the guardrail to tell somebody it doesn't matter if they pay attention to that guardrail or not. Go ahead, ignore it. As long as you're true to yourself, as long as you're doing what you really want, no. No, when God says no to something, it's because there's something greater he says yes to. Notice how Paul says the church in Corinth should be feeling, About this situation. Do you see what he says? So, this guy who claims to be a Christian but is flagrantly rejecting God's good design for sex, Paul says, Shouldn't you be mourning over this? Shouldn't your hearts be breaking that this guy is driving off a cliff? Where are the tears? Where is the sorrow? that somebody in your church thinks that disregarding Jesus' leadership is a good thing. Instead, Paul says, you guys are arrogant. Why does he call them that? Why are they arrogant? It's because one of two things is true. Either they've redefined the boundaries that God defined, that is, they've moved the guardrails so that what this guy's doing is no longer an issue, or they've decided that upholding the boundary is not in anybody's best interest. In other words, it's more loving to overlook this man's sexual misbehavior than to confront him. And again, remember, we're not talking about an oops here. We're talking about a flagrant pattern. So that means either they've moved the boundary or they've said, yeah, I wouldn't be loving to uphold that. That means, whether they realize it or not, they think they're smarter than Jesus or they're more loving than Jesus. And any time you think you're smarter or more loving than Jesus, the only word for that is arrogance. Jesus has good and loving reasons for putting the boundaries where he put them. Putting the guardrails where he has them, even if we don't understand them. And I'll tell you, as a young man, before I was married, I didn't understand that guardrail. Seemed pretty arbitrary and mean to me. I see it differently now. We need to remember who gave us these moral boundaries and why. And then the third thing, if the teaching tastes bad, check your diet. Check your diet. If this moral teaching still tastes bad to you, remember, what you eat can seriously affect your sense of taste. I read an article once about the guy who is the official taster for a major ice cream company. It literally is his job every day to go to work and taste ice cream. And his scent, you know, to make sure it meets the company's standards. And when they come out with a new flavor, he has to try it and make sure, you know, it's all good. And his sense of taste is so good. It's so accurate that he can tell within a percentage point or two how much butter fat is in the ice cream. And he can detect all those subtle flavors and say if anything's too strong or too weak or just right. I mean, you talk about your dream job. (laughs) Why didn't anybody tell me about this when I was in high school? (laughs) Well, here's the thing. This guy has to be extremely careful about what he eats, even when he's not on company time. So, no strong flavors. No spicy food, Thai, Mexican cuisine, nope, off limits. Nothing that can throw his taste buds off and mess up his palate for ice cream. In fact, he uses a gold spoon to taste ice cream. And I'm not just, I don't mean a gold color spoon, I mean actually made of gold. Because the gold will not chemically react with anything in the ice cream and affect the flavor. If you want your moral palate to be accurate, if you want your moral taste buds to be able to accurately distinguish between what is good and what isn't, you've got to be careful about your diet of ideas, of opinions, of what the world says is good and bad. Look at Hebrews 5.14. It says, but solid food is for the mature. Do you know he's not actually talking about physical food here? It's a metaphor of spiritual food, spiritual diet. And he says, solid food, solid spiritual food is for the mature. For those, look at this, who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish Good from evil. You can train your moral taste buds to distinguish. And that is a sign of spiritual maturity when you can correctly discern what is good and what isn't. So check your diet. Check your diet. The shows you watch, the articles you read, the social media you consume. What your fellow students or co-workers or family members think, all of it can affect your moral taste buds. How do you know if some moral idea really is good or bad, as God defines it? How do you know? I'll give you a hint. It's not necessarily how it tastes. Just because something tastes morally good or bad doesn't mean it is. Um, Just because something tastes good doesn't mean it is good. Uh, I understand, I've been told, I don't know this from personal experience, but antifreeze tastes really sweet. Which is why you can't leave a puddle of it in your garage if you have a dog or cat. Because they'll just lap it up gleefully, And die. How do you know if a moral idea is really good or if it's spiritual antifreeze? You see how well it lines up with the teaching, with the character, with the moral boundaries of Jesus. Who loves you Who wants what is best for you more than anyone else does? Who is committed to your eternal joy and satisfaction? That's how you know. Increase your diet of what he says, of what he teaches, of what he thinks and decrease your diet of ideas that don't taste like his. Check your diet. Now next time, just giving you a heads up, I plan to talk about what to do when your desires or the desires of someone else are in conflict with God's design. How do you love somebody whose desires do not match What God says is good. And then another heads up on March 3rd, March 3rd, so a little over a month away. After we've plowed through some of these passages and what it's talking about on sexual desire, sexual identity, all of these things that are just such a big deal in our culture right now, uh, I'm hoping to do a question and answer time on March 3rd in the second hour. And we'll have a way that you can text in questions anonymously so you don't have to stand and ask some embarrassing question. Um, Anyway, that's coming up on March 3rd. So, if it doesn't taste sweet, are you understanding it correctly? Are you remembering where moral boundaries come from, who gave them to us, and why? And how's your diet? Let's pray. Gracious, gracious Father, um, your word is good. Your intentions for us are always good. You always want what's best for us. Help us remember that. Help us keep it in mind when we encounter difficult truth. Things that don't taste good. Help us... Lord, will you please just (laughs) help our spiritual and moral taste buds become more and more aligned with yours, that we can truly say and feel from the depths of our hearts that you are good and all your ways are good. Father, help us represent Jesus well to one another. To the world that needs so desperately your good news. A salvation that's absolutely free. We can't earn it. We've dis-earned it so many times. But you are there. Your arms are open. You say, come to me. All right, just come. There's no reason not to come. That's any good. Help us come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.